I would say right now, my priority is keeping in perspective, again, that that healing happens in community and community happens into pouring into others. A lot of us are feeling isolated right now. And being more isolated is not going to fix that. Uh, and just because we can't meet in person doesn't mean that there's things that we can't do. We're not just experiencing a crashing economy in a pandemic. This is a collapse of educational systems and health systems worldwide where there is starvation. There's going to be new generations of illiteracy. There's even been massive rise in child marriages as families are marrying off their young daughters as a chance for survival. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. With me today is Carissa Kesey. She's 29 years old and has been using her paintings to raise awareness and funds for the most marginalized people in the world for over six years. After earning a degree in studio arts from George Fox University, she began her philanthropic journey of creativity by giving a percentage of all her proceeds to charitable organizations. Carissa currently lives in the greater Seattle area with her husband, Jordan, where she paints full-time. Welcome, Carissa, artist and advocate. Thank you again for having me. You're welcome. So you are an artist and an advocate. Yes, I am artist first, and I use that as a way to advocate for various social justice issues. Currently, I am focused on the refugee crisis and humanizing the refugee experience and giving a platform to refugees in our community to share their story. Awesome. And how are you doing that? Are you painting their pictures? Yeah. So I am partnered with an organization called World Relief, which is a nonprofit that they help resettle refugees all over the United States. And I work with refuge, uh, refugees specifically in Seattle. And I worked with them and they gave me names of people that were possibly interested in sharing their story. And so over the course of meals and picnics and just talking in their living room while their kids played around, I got to know their stories. I worked in partner, volunteered with them uh, with a amazing photographer, Natalie Malice. I was the art director for all of the photos and kind of told her what I was wanting while I interviewed and got to know them uh, on a personal level. And throughout the writing process and the painting process, I checked in with what they wanted to tell their community about being a refugee and what that was in their experience. So it was really important for me to tell their story and try to take away some of the bias that I may have. So I'll tell you about my book. Last September, uh, not this one, but last September, I came out with my book, When You Can't Go Home, Portraits of Refugees in the Pacific Northwest, and oh. it entails 10 refugee families aside 30 watercolor portraits. And aside uh, their stories and the pictures, I also give 50% of the profit to World Relief to help with refugees resettlement in my area. How I kind of got started with this whole thing was I was sitting in bed with my husband and we were scrolling through Facebook, and this was about seven years ago. And uh, I think this is really relatable where I came across an article about the Syrian civil war and my heart was broken just like so many others. And over the uh, men, women, and children that were being uh, displaced and persecuted and tortured in just unnameable ways. And what broke my heart further were the comments that some people were leaving. And some of them were people that I knew that I knew, um, it would be considered people of the community, but they were saying things like, we don't want you here, go back home, you're terrorists, all these terrible things. And I realized that there was just disconnection between who refugees are and who they are often represented in the community by the media. 
Um, I think oftentimes we see them as, uh, or they are portrayed as terrorists, as heroes or saints or villains or, or even victims. And that's not true. They're people first. They are mothers, they're fathers, entrepreneurs, musicians, doctors, all of those things. And they just need someone to walk beside them when things get hard. And so as I was reading about the Syrian civil war and how large refugee crises were actually in the largest refugee crisis since World War II, I just kind of felt helpless, helpless in such a large uh, problem in the world. And I think that's something that we all can relate with. And all I felt like I had were my paintings. The fact that I'm an artist and other artists can relate. It doesn't always feel like the most useful gift. If someone has a broken arm, a doctor can help. If someone has a broken pipe, like a plumber can help. Um, But, you know, the most I can do is paint you a picture of a daisy and that's not very helpful. Maybe I can scream, but (laughs) that's not going to help. But in the right context, it is. And so I was challenged and convicted that if I want to say that I'm for refugees, I need to live life in community alongside my refugee brothers and sisters every day. And the second was that it's not enough for me to be broken by what I saw in my community. I had to step up and be a part of the solution using the resources I had and the season that I was in. And what I can do is tell stories. What I can do is paint. And what I can do is get to know people in my community and listen, especially being white artist in America. I have privileges that some people don't always have. To me, it's about being a good steward of those privileges and using them to create a platform for others who um, have been oppressed or who are oftentimes looked over and need to be listened to and setting an example in that way. So that's when I started reaching out to World Relief and getting to know just various people in my community. I've learned a lot and I don't come forward as this huge expert on immigration or on refugees. You know, I know a lot and I've done a lot of research and I've, that's a lot in my book. But what I do come forward is as a regular person who's used whatever resources are available to me to try to make the world better around me. And I think that's something we all have the power to do. We all have something we can offer it, whether it be our time, our talent, or something we can give. So the end of that is, um, you know, my book. And I've gotten the honor to be able to tell a story on CNN, on various uh, local news stations and uh, podcasts like this one. And My goal is just to spread their story as far as possible to humanize the refugee experience and raising empathy for our community. I think it's really important, and especially right now with the size of the refugee crisis. And I like how you said in your bio about a marginalized community. And I know being from working in Seattle, I also worked with an organization that worked with refugees. That wasn't my job, but uh, listening to them and the work they did and how they looked for mentors and families uh, to take in the the younger ones that were underage, it was just so fascinating. And the stories were so incredible. And I wonder if you might share a couple of your stories. Absolutely. It's hard to choose because there's so (laughs) many good ones, but Uh, You're so right in the fact of just trying to find people to partner and come alongside refugees in the community. A lot of people think you have to be, like I said, a doctor or or really rich or an amazing teacher that can teach English, but like literally just 
going to someone's house, bringing them a meal, mentoring their children. In fact, something I tell a lot of parents is that you think that your child's video game obsession is totally useless, but actually inviting a refugee family over and introducing them to video games because technology is such an integral part in the workplace right now and in life, teaching them how technology is a huge window of opportunity and you get the, the community of playing with your friends. So Literally everything can be used. And with World Relief, there's something called Cultural Companion, where you're literally just a friend. You're not even a host home. You're a friend to a family. And what I like to say is that you are living with that person, not just speaking. Like One thing I've learned through this, it's really easy, especially as an advocate, to speak for or over those you're advocating for, but it's so important that you don't do that because they have a voice instead to listen while you're, that's part of advocating for them is listening to them, listening to their story and giving them a platform. That's such good advice because I think that part of the problem even with mentoring is we have this idea that we have to do something and what I've really discovered with mentoring is being and sitting mm-hmm. near, walking with, but not that we're trying to teach them necessarily anything because they're really smart. They may not talk our language, but they know about things. Yeah, probably know about six more languages than we do. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I love that. Exactly. I love that advice. So my question was, can you tell us a story or two? Yes, thank you. I was <laughs> getting excited about the mentorship thing and totally forgot about the story, the oh, most important part. I love it. One thing I try to do in my book as I go into the story is I try to get people from a various, uh, well, they all settled here in the Northwest in the Seattle area, but they're from all over the world, from all different cultures and all different religions. And then I try to tell it from within their view and trying to get rid of any bias I had. And obviously there's some, but I'm doing my best to try to get rid of that and check with them. So one of the most impactful people probably in my life right now, but also just in the book is Jean. So Jean's story starts in Rwanda during the Rwandan genocide. And she was pregnant uh, and had a toddler that she was caring for. One of her is her firstborn, her toddler. And it was nearing her due date. And it was when the Rwandan genocide broke out. She fled immediately her home, hearing the cries of her neighbors being slaughtered and so she ran with hundreds of other civilians towards the Congo jungle and began running for freedom to find respite in the Congo or wherever she could find it. I just remember her telling me that her feet started bleeding, that she could hear ambushes in the night where she kept running and some of her travel companions were picked off from um, ambushes and dying from um, infection from wounds that they had received and she is just an amazing matriarch where she says that the only thing that got her through were her babies, that she wanted to live for her babies and she yeah. had to live for them. Eventually, she got to um, the edge of a jungle where there was a refugee camp. And a lot of people think refugee camps are like, you know, you think of like marshmallows and camping in a tent. Like, no, this that's not what it is. What it is, it's on the edge where no one where wants to live. It is mm. supposed to be a temporary living situation, but oftentimes people will live there anywhere from like one week to 40 years. And oftentimes it's longer. There's no education. There's very little to no medical intervention. Um, and so 
Amidst this disease and unclean water, she gave birth to her second son. Eventually, she got to another part of the Congo, and she had three more children. She had five children total. And uh, because of the stress of being a refugee and some other experiences, her husband and her got a divorce. And so she raised five children on her own. And so she would talk to me about going nights without food, working two jobs just so that her kids could have food and some kind of education there. And her children actually followed in her footsteps. Her child, M.A., who is her daughter, who's in the book as well, talked about how she would save up her earnings to be able to give her neighbors food. So it's just a very inspiring family. And it took 10 years to receive refugee status as a single mother of five. And if that doesn't say something about our system of letting refugees in, I don't know what does. So for over the course of 10 years, she would walk to various health appointments, health screenings, interviews with her five children. And finally, the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees, finally placed her. And that's when, one of the things that I'm trying to get rid of misconceptions about refugees. And part of it was things that I had to humble my heart and learn because I didn't know this was that most of the time when you apply for refugee status, if you're even granted it, you don't get to choose where you go. you are placed. So like you could be placed in Turkey, you could be placed in the United States, United States, you could be placed in Florida or Washington. So imagine getting this, you know, letter that like, okay, you're going to Seattle, Washington, a foreign land that you've never heard before with your five children. And so she talks about boarding the plane and feeling so much anxiety of like, what if it's the same there? What if there's war there too? You know, will they be able to get an education? Is everything I've heard true, the good and the bad, but feeling hope for her children. So she got here and World Relief actually meets meets the refugees at the airport and gives them a host home until they find their own home, get them on their feet. And what I love about World Relief is it's not just giving them their resources because that's only a very small part of it. The emotional and mental trauma after escaping genocide and war is <sighs> massive along with the trauma of adjusting to a new place. And so what they do is they enter community. And I think Jean knows this more than anyone and embodies it is that healing happens in community and community happens with the pouring into others. John was shown that, but she also embodies that. So when she got here, she immediately, instead of, you know, poor me, I only have a small apartment with five children. She invited other people to her house constantly, giving them food, giving them a place to stay. She started volunteering. Uh, She speaks, I think five or six languages. And she started working with World Relief to help other refugees and working with translation. And just to give an idea, of some of the things that you have to learn is like how do you how do you cross the street in another country how do you go grocery shopping not so much in John's experience but in other people's experiences that grew up in in refugee camps how do you use running water uh what are the customs here Uh, one of the things she was worried about was they live on a second story in an apartment and it's like well if we're too loud, are we going to get kicked out? Are there going to be people who come with guns to our our door? Because that was their reality. Mm. Now her children are all in college and they're pursuing various careers. Emma is her daughter goes to Northwest University and she actually was able to go be on the news with me and tell her story. She's extremely uh, just a well-spoken young lady and an advocate for 
ever anyone who's oppressed in, in many social justice issues. And she wants to be a social worker and mm-hmm. psychologist. She kind of keeps going back. She's going to do everything, basically. She's <laughs> going back and forth. But Jean is going to school. And uh, Justin is an amazing matriarch and has just changed my life, knowing that just to keep going, to keep persevering, especially when things are hard. And that's not important just to show up when things are hard, but especially when things are hard in someone's life. Mm. And it's to the point where like, I'll text their family, you know, how are you doing, especially with COVID? Like, is there anything I can do? But they text me, you know, oh. how, how can I help you? Are you doing okay? <laughs> and especially when I've had trauma in my life, but nothing near <laughs> what mm. they've gone through. And uh, just the the friendship and camaraderie that can happen through just listening and learning from one another is amazing. And she's changed my life more than I can ever hope to impact hers. Mm. And how long has she been here now? A long time. I'm trying to remember. I think it's been about 10 years. And so you met her and from doing listening to her and doing her photo and everything, you became friends. Yes, correct. Oh, I love that. And I brought her daughter in with me on a few uh, projects I've done. And that's been exciting because um, anytime I can just push myself aside, like this isn't about me, this is about their stories. Anytime I can do that is a win for me. I brought her daughter along with me. And, and like I said, she's been on the news with me. She uh, spoke in a CNN article. I even had her, uh, my husband's a youth pastor and oh. We were doing a service trip with LA Dream Center, and I wanted her to be able to share a little bit of her story and just talk about service uh, because she does a lot of mission trips and a lot of service trips herself. So I brought her in for that as well. So um, to find my book, and you can download a free chapter as well as just learn more about me, uh, I have a website, carisakeezy.com. I'm also on Amazon, and the book is When You Can't Go Home. My Instagram is carisakeezyart, and um, I encourage any of the listeners to follow me. I have current events as well as I just really like challenging conversations and working as a community to help each other out in what does it look like to be a servant and love people well, especially during this time. I'm also kind of goals on the horizon is I'm working with some schools to get uh, when you can't go home in the curriculum, the mentality of being a child, growing up with the media, telling everyone that you are a, a villain or a victim um, is very damaging. And mm. to read stories where you're either the antagonist or a side character, I want them to read stories where they're the protagonists of real stories of people who are leaders in the community that they can do that and that we see them. So that's really important. And so that's kind of on the horizon as we're trying to get that in the Seattle school system and the places around that. Just being able to spread the story as far as possible. I would love to do another book. Um, mm. I would love to travel, but you know, with COVID, who knows what that looks right. like. When did your book come out? It came out last September. Oh, okay. So So it's been a year. Yeah, you had a few minutes before COVID. (laughs) Yes, I did. I did. And actually, yeah, it was a whole whole thing. But what will your next book be called? You know, I don't know. I would love to write about refugee camps and detention centers. I think there's a lot of mystery and a Mm -hmm. lot of um, misconceptions around both of those things. I feel like I wrote a lot about them coming here and adjusting here. 
and kind of writing about the waiting time. What do you do in the waiting is something that I have learned about and I want to learn more about myself and be able to learn uh, with my community and, and have those resources available. I'm also very passionate about women's rights and women's body image. And so that's something that I've um, dabbled in is just art wise. I would say right now, my priority is keeping in perspective, again, that that healing happens in community and community happens into pouring into others. A lot of us are feeling isolated right now. And being more isolated is not going to fix that. Uh, and just because we can't meet in person doesn't mean that there's things that we can't do. We're not just experiencing a crashing economy in a pandemic. This is a collapse of educational systems and health systems worldwide where there is starvation. There's going to be new generations of illiteracy. There's even been massive rise in child marriages as families are marrying off their young daughters as a chance for survival. It seems like this huge issue, and it is, but to be a part of a solution, it means saying yes to whoever's at your door, whoever's in your community with the resources that you have. And there's a huge community online on Instagram that is ready to do that with you, to encourage you and figure out how your talents can meet the needs. So that'd be my top priority is just trying to work together in that and especially welcoming refugees that are. What can people do? So depending on where you're at, I encourage people to get involved in an organization locally, whether it's World Relief or other organizations and ask what you can do to help. So there's things like the Cultural Companion where you literally are just a friend. You just give them the kids donuts on their birthdays, write them cards, ask them if you can help them go grocery shopping. There you can give financially, you can uh, teach classes, you can mentor, there's community gardens, especially right now in the Seattle area, there's community gardens for refugees that want to have a community to also be able to plant some of their own familiar foods. So we're getting them ready for winter. And so even just showing up and doing whatever they need. I don't really know much about gardening, but I do what they tell me to do to dig holes or <laughs> spread turf, whatever they need. But also just when you see someone who looks different or speaks a different language than you, maybe it's having troubles with English to have grace mm. and to realize they're probably actually, in my opinion, probably smarter than I am. They know six languages and they're going through a lot of trauma, even if they're not refugees, but immigration as well. Not viewing it as someone who's better or worse than you, but just a fellow human being and humanizing that experience. So even just on an everyday level, and also just speaking up for refugees in the grocery store line. One time I had a book with me, so I was going to an event and speaking, and I was grabbing lunch, and this gentleman behind me said, I'm like, oh, what is, who, what is that? And I'm like, oh, this is a book I wrote, and I told him about it, and he said, oh, I don't want those people there. Oh. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Um, and he explained, you know, kind of the propaganda about they're taking our jobs, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, well, let me introduce you to some. And I, I, I showed them this book and I, he kind of was listening. And then I turned the page to this father and daughter and he's holding her up. His name is Alan. And he started tearing up and he goes, who's that? And he goes, that's her daughter. And he goes, I would give anything for my daughter to smile that way. And he said, thank you. I had no idea that this was actually their story. And so just speaking up for them and when when you as soon as possible handing the mic to the refugees and to share their story what i love about this book is it's a coffee table book it's very pretty it's very just simple to read it's a heavy read but it's it's easy to read as far as just it's not too long and you can keep it on your coffee table. And without introducing the subject, all people look look at it. They interact with the pictures, have empathy for the people in there. And they start reading the stories. And before they know it, they're invested. And they're reading what real news is, what real facts mm -hmm. are about these real people. 
And through that, it's been amazing to see even relatives of mine and friends of mine that were completely anti-immigration and refugees be the people to actually bring it up and defend them in the grocery stores and wherever they're traveling. And it's just been a humble experience to be able to be a part of that. And really, it's not it's not what I'm doing. I'm just giving them a platform and writing their story the way they would want it to be said. Mm-hmm. So, Well, two things that stood out to me, well, so many, but one is I love how you talk about healing happens in community, which is so true. And during a pandemic, that's been really difficult, but it sounds like you have found ways to navigate that. And then in the grocery store, you could have been just belligerent and rude, but you were so kind and you like invited him into this. And I just think so often people want to argue when we have a kind heart and we have grace and we say, let me tell you, because now you've heard the stories and you know them. And that just touched my heart to think that in that moment, somebody's heart changed because not only were you kind, but you said, let me show you this. Well, thank you. And I'm not perfect. And I definitely have my moments where, thank goodness, um, you know, I need to (laughs) definitely check what I say. Cause I I mean, when you're talking about people's rights, I can get very angry when they get taken Mm -hmm. away. But here's the thing is it took people to do that to me, maybe not about this issue, but about other issues where I was ignorant and I did not know. And even, I mean, about this issue, I knew it was for refugees, but I didn't spend any time or knew any refugees in my life. And that, you know, to me wasn't okay for me. And I wanted to amend that. And so it took people being patient and gracious with me for me to learn and to continue learning. I have a lot more to learn. And so that helps me try to be gracious with others. A lot of times, you know, there are just straight up mean people, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times it's just misinformation Yeah, um, where they don't have the right information that they haven't meant personally people in their community and they're afraid especially right now a lot of anger is actually just disguised fear Mm -hmm. um, fear of the unknown so when we're able to put a face to the unknown and a face to the numbers then everything changes oh i love that and i love it that you said yes so often we We say yes, and then we do something that we didn't even know, and we make a difference. We say yes first, and I love it. I love it that you started this story with that. And then as we got through the interview, we see the impact not only on your life, but on other people. So thank you for the work you do. And when you write your next book, I want to hear from you. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Lori, and I appreciate what you do and for your podcast. Thank you. Tell me again your website. CarissaKesey.com. Do you want to spell that? Yeah. K-A-R-I-S-A-K-E-A-S-E-Y dot com. And my Instagram is Carissa Kesey Art. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people who are making a difference in our community.